In times of kind of national turmoil or struggle, America turns to black art and especially to black music. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I talk to Rishi Rajani, CEO of Hillman Grad Productions. Hillman Grad is a full-service media and production company curated by Emmy Award-winning creator Lena Waithe. Their mission is to empower underrepresented artists and amplify the stories of diverse, historically marginalized communities across all industries. And they work in TV, film, music, books, podcasts, branded content, and even have a great mentorship program. Rishi and I talk a lot about South Asian representation then and now, his relationship to being brown growing up, and all the fantastic stories Hillman Grad Productions is sharing with the world. We honestly did not have enough time to talk about it all, but I think I could have made this like a two-hour episode. I really hope you enjoy my interview with Rishi Rajani. Let's start with uh, what you're doing right now, CEO of Hillman Grad Productions. Of course, I do my research. LinkedIn is the first place I go to do my to do my deep dive research. And you've been with Hillman Grad five-ish years. It started as what is it, VP, then president, and then CEO in a few short years, honestly. And so, I mean, what's the magic? How did this happen? Tell me about the journey. Yeah. Well, I had the the wonderful pleasure of of being essentially employee number one. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. So in 2018, Lena was coming off of her Emmy win and she had the shy and was going to its second season and she was at a place where she could start a company. She had actually come in to pitch on a project that I had had at the old company I was working at, Studio 8. And we connected there. It was a really great meeting and experience. And then a few months later, I was kind of considering what do I want to do with the rest of my career. I was really eyeing producing as a pathway. And Lena's manager at the time, Andrew Coles, had reached out to me and said, look, Lena's looking for someone to come run her company. Are you interested in that job? And I was like, oh, my God. I very much am interested in that job. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and. Yeah. I went and I don't think I ever prepared for a job interview as much as I did. And we met uh, actually at LaMille Coffee in Silver Lake. And, you know, I'd spread out this, like these file folders on the table, which was like writer's list, director's list, like a stack of books that I thought that we could option and like a whole business plan and strategy. I think Lena thought that I was kind of a lot, but. <laughs> You're so busy. <laughs> <laughs> but she she really liked the energy and she's such like a decisive person and ended up actually calling me and hiring me that night, which was uh, nuts and amazing. But you know, one thing that was really cool about it is I was 26 years old when, when Lena hired me and she could have hired someone a lot more senior. But I think we had a very similar spirit and a very similar energy around diversity and bullshit Hollywood diversity and actually wanting to bring people up with us and open the door for storytellers. And so she admired that. She admired my energy. I had been a huge fan of hers for a long time and it really clicked. And so we ended up starting to work together and it was such a crash course for me in learning how to produce, learning how to run a company. It started out like it was just me and and we did Boomerang season one for BET and I was learning so much on that set. I made a lot of mistakes too. 
was you know really brought into like kind of the film and television process from there and the company made queen and slim and the 40 year old version which won the best director award at sundance and we were really kind of off to the races we did 20s lena semi-autobiographical show for bet that she kind of wanted to be here all about eve and then just continued to push and push and you know made a thousand and one which won the grand jury prize at sundance this year and shank and dunk which premiered on Disney Plus in March, and Jingyi Shao, the writer-director behind that, was named to Variety's top 10 directors to watch. And Mary, our Mary Tyler Moore film, her documentary that premiered at South By and is now going to be on HBO at the end of this month, I guess. Okay. It's May. It's May already. Yes. <laughs> in Kokomo City, yeah. which we had the pleasure of coming on to at Sundance, actually, and seeing kind of, you know, that film do just tremendously well. The plan is working, I guess. It's like the idea that there is an audience for all of these artists who you know, such different background, backgrounds across race and sexuality and geographic location, financial status and age and disability. And like, there's just so many stories that haven't been told. And we hope to be the home for those stories. I think that's been a mantra from the very beginning. I think you guys are doing it. Let me get this straight. So. You basically, when you started with Hillman Grad, you, the past, it's only been, what, five years? You have learned to not only run a company, <laughs> you have learned how to produce in these five years. That's an education you cannot get anywhere. A hundred percent. And that's the thing is that I worked primarily in, in the studio system and in the agency. I was like a very traditional, like started in the mailroom, worked, became an assistant to an agent named Dana Spector, who is absolutely incredible. Um, he went to Studio 8, was an assistant there before I became a creative executive. You know, when you're in kind of those more of the like the traditional studio systems, you're not producing as much. And when I say producing, I mean, literally being on sets and like being in the trenches. And when you're a development executive at a studio, you have so many projects that you're overseeing. You can't be so kind of like focused on one thing. And so what I loved about coming to the producing side is it's really originating an idea with a filmmaker, a writer, director, getting to then take that idea all the way through the script process, giving notes, building the concept, finding the filmmaker, working with the filmmaker, selling the project, setting it up, then going into pre-production, finding all the right department heads, honing like the whole production process, getting into the insanity that is production, and then taking it through post. And like you're giving, again, notes on cuts and having been and really seen it all the way through. But as a producer, you're also then involved in the rollout and the marketing and you know making sure that there's an after party at the premiere and like, doing like... Every single aspect of it, it's really satisfying. You really feel like you're part of something and you get to know everyone. I do feel, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've only done a few things working in the film industry. I was a production assistant for like for Cal, for Cal Penn and Lisa Ray back in the day. So I was on a film set for like maybe a year. But it feels like the word, the term, the role producer can be or maybe is different for different people. Is that correct? Like people, producers take on different tasks. It just feels like anytime I hear the word producer, people say it's different things. Totally. I mean, it does. And, and I don't think there's just, there's one way to be a producer, right? I think it depends and it depends for me. You know, like thinking about the producing team, how many people there are, who has the relationships with who, 
for me, it's all about the filmmaker when I'm on set and like what they need me there for. It's funny, like, you know, when I did Chank and Dunk with Jingyi Xiao, you know, obviously we would have amazing creative discussions, work through the script, like talk about casting, talk to, and when we're on set, like talking about sort of like the daily choices that were made, you know, and as things happened and we lost the location or we were running out of time during the day, figuring out how to problem solve actively. But there's also an emotional component to it too, right? Like sometimes like we just be really frustrated and Jing is a great basketball player and we'd sit on the basketball court that we were shooting on, you know, he would just shoot threes and I would rebound the ball to him and <laughs> let him vent his frustration That's amazing. that way. You yeah. Know, like that, like that to me was also part of producing. Yeah. You're in it. The producer's in it. Like this is your baby kind of thing at every project. And birthing like a creative project in the world and, and being part of that process with an artist, like it's very intense and vulnerable. And there's a there's a level of emotional connection to it that is like, oh, you're, you're putting your all into this and you're going to be judged for this, too. And that's the thing that Lena and I talk about a lot with you know, many of the up and coming emerging filmmakers that we're working with. You need to be really steadfast in your choices and your decisions and why you're making the decisions because people will question them. People will have opinions. Shocking. <laughs> right? Totally. Yeah. Everyone is a critic. Yeah. Especially nowadays. There's Everyone is a platform. So. <laughs> yeah. But there's also such a privilege in getting to put stuff out into the world. So I think for when I'm deciding on the projects that I want to take on, it very much is like, okay, what is the reason for this existing? Like, why should it be in the world? Do I believe in the message that it's saying? And then also think about like my philosophy around it, right? And like, I want to work with people that I enjoy working with. I want to put out stories that are meaningful to me and meaningful to audiences that haven't necessarily had those stories told. But um, I really love this thing that Virgil Abloh said, which is that I do everything for my 17-year-old self. Yeah. And I think about that a lot because I look back to myself and like being eight years old to 13 years old, that super formative time where you're defining your self-esteem, your self-worth, like your kind of your place in the world. And it is so impactful to not see yourself on screen. Like it really makes a gigantic difference. And so for me, I think about like kind of the next crop of projects that I want to do. I think it's all about that and the idea that doing real authentic representation and like not even in the way of like just having movies about otherness and overcoming otherness, but just literally seeing people on screen as heroes is wildly important. Oh my God. So I got to tell you, so I'm a little older than you, you know, still (laughs) still in my my lower forties, but you know, when we grow up, there was literally no one. I know I'm not 100 years old, but like it feels like even in, you know, the difference in our generations, talking to people like you now, it's so exciting. It's so weird for me. So I, I, I mentioned Kyle Penn. I had interviewed him for the, for the podcast. And both of us were talking about like how we still get excited. Even him, who's in the industry, get we, get, we still get excited when we see Indian kids, South Asian kids on screen. It's still not weird in a bad way, but I'm like, oh my God, like it's just, it was never part of my DNA growing up, right? Like I was, I grew up watching The Breakfast Club and, you know, all all those films and, and I loved them, but never realized the impact it had not seeing myself on there and always feeling like, okay, I, I want to be them, but I'm not, I'm not them. And so God, what you guys, it's so exciting to be alive and like see all this happening. And I have two kids and, and for them, this is going to be the norm. 
Yeah. You know, which is really cool because of people like you guys. It's, it's awesome. There's a systemic aspect of it too. And yeah. I think a cultural aspect and being like, you're now seeing the second generation immigrant kids who actually have the freedom to not be doctors or engineers or feel like they can break out into areas. Or lawyers. I I did that just to satisfy my parents just letting you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I also sometimes get really annoyed by like the, like the Brown parent trope of being not supportive. And I, I, I really don't think that it comes from this idea of like, just wanting to kill dreams. I think it's more of this like fear. It's all fear. It's all fear based. I will tell you, so this podcast has been a, I've realized after like 500 hours of recording, I'm like, oh, this is like my therapy session, like (laughs) for myself, because the same theme comes about from people 25 to 45, 50, whoever I interview, and I will tell you, every 99% of my guests will say parents were fearful. No one was ever trying to kill anything. They just didn't know. And they came here. Our parents are the original OG, the OGs of entrepreneurship, right? Coming here. And so, yeah, I think that was the one, one of the therapy sessions I've had with, with a lot of people. I, I've realized, I'm like, oh, wait, my parents really didn't try to bash my dreams. They just didn't understand them. Yeah. And I also want to see that kind of authentic representation on screen too, where it's like we're not seeing the very stereotypical parental relationship. And I think that was a thing for for Chang as well that was really important for us, was actually talking about like, hey, like when you come to this country and you don't know anything and you don't know anyone and you're chasing opportunity and fighting so hard for your family and for your kids. Yeah, it is really scary when your kid is like, hey, I want to go into this thing. And I think even for my parents, it was like, it was not even trying to dissuade me from doing it. It was more like, we feel like we don't know anyone. We can't help you. We can't send you over the internship. You know, we can't call our friends. How do they guide you? Like they, yeah. like they, they don't know how to navigate it. Right. So it's scary. Yeah. And yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for that and a lot of appreciation for it. Cause it, it makes sense to me. You know, imagine in some future of a world where, where, where I have children, like, yeah, you do have your own fears and, and all you want is for them to be able to support themselves and to be able to move through the world. And- yeah. I will tell you as a, as a mother of two girls now, we're, I think our generation and, and younger, we're more cognizant of it, of passing on these fears and issues we've had. I definitely am. And I, I try to, you try to stop yourself. You, it seeps through and you have to fight it and try to like, cold back. A, a lot of it is, you know, generational that you have to like figure out. But anyways, we can get in a whole podcast about parenting. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Okay. So Hillman grad, I, from my research, six divisions, TV and film, music, books, podcast, branded content and mentorship, which I love. I know you had mentioned, let's talk about the, the production arm, the Hillman grad productions. I know you mentioned Mary Tyler Moore's film coming out end of May, HBO. First two-part question, uh, any other projects that you could, I know you've been super busy. I've been trying to like get you on this pod, bugging all your like assistants and whoever you're working with. Any other projects you can talk about coming up? And then I'm just, you know, you guys have done so much. You guys have produced so much great work. Maybe name one film that you guys have produced that has had the greatest impact on you and why. Oh, man. I think I have to give kind of two answers. 
And they're both both films that that came out this year, right? One is A Thousand and One, which is A.V. Rockwell's movie starring Tiana Taylor. We're on paid video on demand now, and the movie's been doing incredibly well. But it's so fascinating and so kind of like heartwarming to see how people are feeling really seen by the movie and how the filmmaker, A.V., wanting so authentically to capture Harlem and Tiana giving such a Harlem performance and talking about, you know, gentrification in the city, but also through like a beautiful mother-son relationship. It's emotionally affected people in a really big way. And that to me has been, one, it's like A.V. is a filmmaker whose short film that we watched and, and really fell in love with and wanted to support her in this. But it's one thing to support one person and then watch like the massive kind of cultural impact as that, you know, the supporting of one person it ripple effects and and affects so many people who haven't seen themselves before. I feel very similarly about Jing and Chang and that one for me, obviously there's a personal element on it for it being an Asian American coming of age story, which I didn't growing up. And I think that that movie in particular would have meant something to me in a really significant way. If I had watched it when I was 12, 13 years old and felt like, Oh man, I've had that experience. I felt other than that way. I felt just this like incredible desire to feel seen it fulfills very much the the Virgil Abloh like make things for yourself, you know, when you're a teen. Thing. You're like I can shoot I can shoot three pointers yeah. too. <laughs> Those two things, and I think it's also because we're just I'm just sort of swept up in both of them right now. You know, you can catch yeah. Chang on Disney Plus. You can purchase a thousand and one on anywhere you buy your movies online right now, and it's just the the kind of the impact on people has been really inspiring to me. Well, that's the mission, right? You guys have exactly. che- che- checked it, the mission. <laughs> and then anything else coming up uh, that hasn't been released yet that you can talk about or about to be released? Yeah. So obviously coming out soon is the Mary Tyler Moore documentary, which I love because people I don't think would imagine that, you know, I think that sort of the honest like, oh, hey, y'all made this documentary about this white woman. <laughs> but, but it's Mary Tyler Moore. But it's Mary Tyler Moore. And I think it stems a lot from Lena's love of Mary and being sort of like seeing the single woman on television who was so ahead of her time and groundbreaking. And I think she had to also be this person in the public eye and then had her own fair share of like really intense emotional moments that she had to grapple with throughout her life. And so I'm so excited that we we're getting to put out this one because it is like a different, it, it shows empowerment in a different way and through a different, and shows someone that broke through a ceiling at a different time. And I think that also speaks so much to Helmingrad's overall philosophy. But the other project that I'll talk about is another documentary, actually. It's actually all based on the versus battles that were put on by Swiss Beats and Timbaland throughout the pandemic. Basically, when when those are just getting kickstarted, Swizz and Tim reached out to Lena and were like, hey, we're doing this thing. It's called Versus. Are you interested in potentially doing a documentary about it? And Lena was really excited about it. It was just kind of starting to take off a little bit. So we did. And, and we, you know, we, sh- we shot in the weirdest ways at the beginning of the pandemic and literally like started out by sending music artists iPhones to, to capture content on. Oh, that's cool send back to us and then we're able to send out film crews. We had to have them like stand outside the house and like, it, it was like such a wild. Yeah. But our filmmaker, James Adolphus came up with this really cool notion for the documentary, which is that in times of kind of national turmoil or struggle, 
America turns to black art and especially to black music. And that people really viewed verses and what this cultural phenomenon that wasn't created as a place to come and be part of a community. And you got to see it. People going hit for hit and like being competitive online. And then you see people up in the comments and getting shout outs. And, and it was like, it was a way for us to have that collective experience. Even when we were all so isolated. And so, um, you know, James is, has really kind of put together this really incredible vision for this film that is also like looking at the historical significance of black music and how kind of in these particular inflection points in American history, it's come up in significant ways. And so we're doing that with Amazon and hoping to release it soon. It's called Gifted in Black. That is super. I got goosebumps when you just said that sentence. We turned to black artists and music during turmoil. Yeah, right. When you said that, I'm like, yeah, we do. <laughs> but like, didn't even realize it. Totally. Isn't that super interesting? I don't know. That just hit me really hard. No, it's real. It's real. It's real. No, it's real for sure. I mean, I, we all do. It's, yeah. it's, but it's not, I guess, recognized or I don't know. Totally. That's amazing. Well, like, and I think like thinking about, obviously you have kind of this American white population that is obsessed mm-hmm. with black culture and black art. But I think also for like South Asians too, there is such a resonance and connection point with black culture mm-hmm. and it's really interesting because I don't know that it's something that's as acknowledged as I want it to be. Oh my God. We should do a podcast episode <laughs> on that. I, like, I'm not sure about you. We'll, we'll talk about your growing up a little bit, but yeah. I grew up in Houston and, and I've lived in Dallas and went to UT Austin. And I love my Texas Indian boys, but my God, they all thought they were African-American. Yes. <laughs> Specifically Drake. (laughs) Yeah. Or or back in my day, like whoever, like, you know, Mace or P. Diddy or whoever in the 90s. But every single, like 90% of the Indian boys, I swear. And it's it's so interesting that that's kind of a common theme amongst brown kids in a lot of areas, no matter where they grew up. Oh, absolutely. And it's like really interesting, too, because even now in Hollywood, and I've talked about this with a lot of my friends, the amount of opportunities that Asian artists, producers, executives have been given by the black community to come in in a place where like black culture and black film and television has a much larger stronghold in American culture than Asian content does. And that there has been this level of community and there has been this like aspect of reaching back. Like Lena gave me gigantic opportunities. So many of my, my peers have gotten those from black artists. It is interesting because I think there, there's also, and like, because we could do an entire podcast about this because colorism and it's like messed up. And I don't know that like I grew up really having that many connection points to the black community from like a South Asian cultural heritage. And it was so segregated and so you know, real barriers, real barriers between the community. And it's something that's been so interesting in working at a black owned company where we make a pretty significant, primarily black content and the amount that I've been embraced by the community and the amount that people have really been an advocate for me, it's made me think a lot about the South Asian community and how can we, we can be better in a lot of ways. So, I mean, that is down on my list of many questions, even though <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have to cut out. I have like a hundred questions for you, but <laughs> let's just jump to it. Cause that's, it's also a common theme amongst all my South Asian guests. What is your take on What's up with our South Asian community? 
I know the whole not enough room at the top table, not enough room at the table kind of thing. It's beautiful that you have someone like Lena to be your, like, she's your mentor. She's, she lifted you up. It's interesting that we still can't seem to hold each other up. And that's been a common theme again. So what's your experience been like? Yeah. And I think it all stems back to being kids in a South Asian community and, you know, our parents being very competitive with one another, that it was always kind of weighing our successes against each other rather than a celebration of one another. You know, I think like, obviously it's like, we want to go like super sociological. I think you can trace that back to having a very massively overpopulated country and needing to... Uh, the most populous now, right? Yes, right? yes, obviously. So that, that's not going to help. <laughs> and, that, and that, I think, mentality that you have to be yeah. number one to move up, it has pretty significant ramifications for a community. And I think you look at the generations of people that came before us and even in, in thinking about whether it's like the Mindy's and diseases and, and all of them, like... I actually have empathy because they had to exist in entirely white spaces. You had to have a level of integration there. You had to, you know, fight for your seat at the table. And there wasn't a lot of room. In looking at how things are now, I think we're finally at a bit of a tipping point. There's enough of us that, you know, we can have an event. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They threw this South Asian excellence of the Oscar. Yeah. How was it? Did you go? So I didn't go this this latest one. Okay. I was fortunately in New York for Chang, actually. So okay. not, like, that was great. Oh, you, you were busy working. That's fine. But I went to the one before that. And the one before that was particularly weird for me because it was in the courtyard of UTA. UTA was the agency that I started at. Yeah, you were working there, I was going to say. Room. <laughs> so I would like, eat lunch in this courtyard <laughs> as like one of very, very few brown people yeah. uh, there. And then to be in that same courtyard surrounded by a shit ton of brown people. <laughs> Wearing very fancy shit. Right, totally. Yes, was, this yeah. is weird. It was really cool, but it was a very surreal moment for me. God, I'm sure. You're like, guys, you understand what I did here? That's Anyone? Okay. <laughs> I mean, mail, mail room is intense. I'm sure. Yes. I'm, sure, yes, I'm, sure sure. I'm sure you have some stories behind that. Oh, man. But I think we are in a moment where we need to be really honest about the issues in the community. And we need to actually address them. You're seeing people do it. I like big shout out to, to Nick Dodani and to Bash Naren and Vinny Tripper for starting the salon, which they brought me into to help out with the mentorship side of things. But, you know, I feel like I've been complaining to Bash for years about how we didn't have enough community and they went and actually did something about it and started a group, started a mentorship program and made it about the collective. Also, film, television and art is such a collaborative industry. And yeah. You need one another. You need one another. <laughs> it's more, it's more fun. Like, totally. Completely. And so... We're starting to see that shift. I think it's like a weird zone for millennials to be in because you lived in kind of like the older generation. You're kind of on the younger generation. I'm so inspired by Gen Z kids and Gen Z brown kids who are just like, fuck the establishment. We are here. We exist. We're going to be loud. We're going to be proud. And like, we're, we're content creators. We're artists. And so I think like, it's also a really good time to be a producer in that because I get to sort of be part of 
bringing that next generation into kind of the industry mainstream and making stuff. You're part of this like major push right now that's happening, this big, if you want to call it first wave, I'm not even sure what it's called, but you are part of this uplifting moment. And hopefully it's not just a moment. Hopefully this can continue into whatever is called mainstream, right? But this is all getting pushed right now and it feels like it's going towards that way. Yeah. Well, I think there's also... And where you get into the business side of it, this massive gap in the marketplace. And you have Asian American kids that actually don't have brands to rep, don't have content to rep, don't have sweatshirts to wear, don't have records to play. I love what my guy, B, who's doing with his um, record label D36. And that's really a record label for South Asian artists. And it's really dope. And their events are really cool. I went to one at the, um, the Echoplex. They had the band Weston Estate headline. Okay. I don't know. Okay. It's like they're this incredible. You got to teach me all these things, Rishi. I'm a little yeah. behind. So there's, like this, there's this incredible Gen Z Indian or South Asian boy band. And they're so awesome. That's so fun. Kids from all these different backgrounds raging like at the Echoplex, watching brown kids on stage rocking out. And I was like, we have arrived. Like, this is, this is <laughs> Okay, like- I'm sorry. If we have a boy band... And they can dance, like oh, we're done. We're in. They're they're so good. They're so good. And like and I love that Abi like created this like platform to cultivate those artists. And it's in the fine art space as well. It's a lot of artists and painters. So you're seeing all the tendrils exist. And now I think it is very much about us us putting our weight as a community right behind people and it not being a situation where it's like, well, I'm trying to make a TV show, so I can't support your TV show. Right. We can both have TV shows because it's really messed up that, <laughs> that we don't have multiple shows. Yeah, there's but. literally enough streaming platforms for like 1.4 billion of us. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I um, agree. I agree. South Asian content at Hillman. Is that something you've thought about? Yeah. Okay. And there are, there are <laughs> I gotta ask. I gotta ask. There are some very exciting things that are brewing, including like, what would it look like to do a South Asian The Crown? How do we get into the big premium space on things like not a ton of stuff to like quite talk about yet, but there's things that are in the works. You can just cut, you can call me later. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about it. And, you know, I also feel like I've again had the brilliant opportunity to meet with a lot of South Asian filmmakers and I think super impressive um, filmmakers that have come up in the commercial music video space, like Kajal and Priya Minhas and Henry DaCosta and people that I'm like, oh, I'm keeping my eye on all of y'all because what I hope to do is produce all of your first feature films. Yeah. That's amazing. And so that is kind of like, um, you know, and I was introduced to like Henry DaCosta through the Instagram account for the Diaparata. They did a like a really dope mentorship program that I was on board of. I was like, oh my god, I'm getting to meet filmmakers like in this space too. It, it's been exciting to also be part of different mentorship programs and different getting exposure to South Asian artists in different ways. But yeah, I mean, I I want to make a ton of movies with South Asian filmmakers and continue to kind of push content in a way where it's like we also I think we still are in need of our big commercial breakout, a la Crazy Rich Asians. And I hope I get to be the one to produce that. Yeah, we're depending on you, Rishi. We need you. And just throwing it out there, we had a lot of South Asian podcasts too. Yes. So start thinking about those babies. Oh, yeah. uh, last question on Hellman, your CEO. 
I like to ask my cheesy podcast questions. What kind of legacy do you want to leave at Hillman grad? You know, you're not going to be there for the next hundred years. Or maybe you will. Who knows? But maybe not ultimate goal, but legacy. It's sort of, I'm finding my place in a in a bit of a funny place right now. I'm okay. finding myself in a funny place right funny now. Funny places are always really good yeah. to be at. That, that means you're growing. It was, I can't say that I expected to be the CEO, CEO of, a, of a media company. That was one of my questions that I skipped, <laughs> by the way. So thank you. <laughs> like, I, I wanted to be a producer. I wanted to be a good producer of film and television. You know, I'd always love movies even more than I love TV. And I found myself in this position of now having to manage a team of 18 people like having built out divisions, you know, it's like with our Def Jam deal on the music side, with our Zanda Books deal on the book side, like stepping into fashion, stepping into consumer consumer products, you know, like doing all these different things that I'm not an expert at by any way, shape or form. And I'm, so I'm learning a lot every single day. But within it, I've been so incredibly proud of the artists that we've been able to lift up across all those divisions and all those spectrums. And as far as like legacy goes and what I want to leave Helmingrad as, I look at what Hello Sunshine has done and what Reese has built with the audience. I look at what LeBron has built with Spring Hill, like what Kevin Hart has built with Heartbeat. I look at what JJ Abrams has built with Bad Robot. And there's these iconic brands in the space. And I want us to have an iconic brand. I want Helmingrad to be a household name and that someone could be wearing a Helmingrad sweatshirt and watching a Helmingrad show and listening to a Helmingrad record. And understanding what you're standing for, which is true representation in front of and behind the camera, in front of behind the recording studio. It's really important. And I think where our legacy lives and dies is in the artists. And if the artists feel that they were supported by us, they were given a real platform, that we did everything in our power to support their vision, then I think Helen Grad will have a legacy, you know, because that's entirely what it depends on. It's that. I'm really excited to wear my Helen Grad sweatshirt yes (laughs) (laughs) it's equivalent in a weird way to if i'm thinking about what i do like podcasting all of it's great social media posts you know whatever all the all the trinkets but at the end of the day like the artist if the content's not there nothing really matters you know like if the artists aren't there the right artists the right people and you guys aren't just saying okay underrepresented marginalized like you're truly doing it i love i'm going back to mary tyler moore because i think we all have this idea of what marginalized is, with, and that's that's not just people of color. And I love that you guys are defining it in a broader sense. And so, um, I'm very excited for you, Rishi. This is this is amazing, and uh, I cannot wait to get your autograph soon. I want to talk a little bit about growing up. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. A little bit about growing up, and then we'll do a little fast round. So I know you went to NYU. Did you grow up in the New York area in the East Coast? I was born in London. Oh. My family is of the demographic of, of Indian Gujarati people that were India to Africa to the UK. So All right. Mom was born in Uganda. Dad was born in Malawi. Okay. My nani was born in Kenya. You know, like that. Tana Gujarati average, Kenya? Ugh, it's it's really poor. <laughs> it's really poor. It's okay. So uh, on a side note, Rishi, I'm going to, this summer, I'm like going to have some fun with the podcast and do different things. I'm going to have an episode, a live episode here in Dallas with, a, like, there's so many Gujaratis here, but like a lot of my friends who speak, some speak crappy Guju, some speak great. <laughs> and we're going to all have a Gujarati off and I'm just going to record it and just oh, see what happens. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Well, I would be disastrous. <laughs> yeah. No, so I need, I, I need, I need both. I need disastrous <laughs> because Gujarati and our language 
is so awesome and so ghetto at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's like, I have to do one episode on Gujarati, an ode to Gujarati. But anyways, I'll, I'll let you know about it. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, okay, continue. You're your parents. But, you know, there was a crowd of people that, that got caught up in everything with Idi Amin and, and expelling South Asians out of Africa, which is a thing I feel like it's important to bring up. One, I think it really informs my family history, but two, people talk about it enough. It's such a, like, under discussed aspect of South Asian history. But anyways, born, born in the UK, uh, you know, we moved to upstate New York when I was three years old, lived there for, until the age of 11, and then moved to a suburb of Portland, Oregon called Lake Oswego. I've got two little sisters who are just the coolest people ever. Are they your besties? Yeah. I, love, si- I love sibling relationships. <laughs> They're so interesting to me. It's so hard because we, we live in different places you know i've got our my middle sister Kavita is in new york our baby sister maya is in portland the u.s is just too big but whenever we're together it's like the best oh how fun family reunions i have one older brother and this is the wait I were, i'm back in dallas i just moved back i moved seven times in 13 years Oh wow! I hold our conversation when we have a drink. This is the first time I've been back in Texas for a while, so I'm like, just even being five hours away from my parents and my brother is like a game changer. Just, really just I, the older you get, and like, especially with kids, I'm like, someone take them, please. I just need <laughs> great. I need Nana and Nadi here. It's, it's such a big deal to be be closer to them as as they get older too. So for sure. I hear it. I hear it. Okay, so quickly about growing up brown. What was your relationship to being South Asian Indian growing up? Was it something you were proud of or embarrassed about? And then how has that changed over time? So I grew up in like really, I think about both my formative kind of experiences in upstate New York and in suburb Portland. Those are dominated by white people, like both like I think like my high school is 97 percent white. Right. Within that, I definitely ran away my South Asian identity. I definitely, it was not a thing that I was like, and really embraced in any way, shape or form. I think I really wanted to be accepted by the white community that yep. was around me. Right. And I think we all kind of geared towards more of the white, like we talked yep. briefly about the African American community, but for some reason, obviously you're surrounded by the white community, but like yeah. as an Indian community, for some reason we thought that that's where we belonged more or maybe we wanted to. I don't know what the reason is, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, cause you, you want to be normal. Quotation, <laughs> quotations, guys, quotations, oh, everyone. Yeah. Normal as defined yeah. by mass media, which like, <laughs> yeah. is a, yeah, yeah. another reason why I'm in the film and television. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like it, it wasn't a thing that, that I think was a point of significant pride for me. Even, I think, in going to college and then still having more white friends than I had any other demographic. And then in going to and moving to L.A. And in L.A., the people that I had to impress were older, straight white men. And I had to be the cool, diverse person to hang out. I should, you know, it's like you could go have a beer with Rishi. You could go have a martini with Rishi. After, you know, it's like it was. Yep. It was. Exhausting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is a really is a really good word. For it. Yeah, I'm like I hear I yeah same same memories. Yes. Yeah, and so it really wasn't until kind of I was in my like later years at Studio Eight, and then even just studying with Lena that I was like, oh, my otherness is not a thing to be embarrassed of. I guess. Embarrassed? Yeah. Hide away from. You know, there's a power in this identity. 
and it goes both ways too, right? I, it's like, I don't need to be this kind of like white cutout of a person. I also don't need to be so specifically traditionally either that I can be myself. And that is an acceptable way of being. Yeah. And there is power in that and that there, there is an, there's an opportunity in that. And I think I, there's the Asian American experience too, which I think is like a thing that we're just starting to see explored for that is a real identity. It is. And I think we're very lucky. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe this whole ABCD thing. I don't know wherever that started. I'm like, I've never been confused. I just kind of, you just figure out your path. Like we're good. I think I've been confused maybe. (laughs) I mean, yeah, we are, but I visit my cousins in India and, and those mofos are confused too. So I'm just saying. You're allowed to be confused. Yeah. You you can, and being confused is an absolutely appropriate part of an identity and feeling stuck between things. Totally. But then also in crafting and cultivating, creating a new life. Right. I'm so excited about because being Asian American is a real thing. Yes. And we are real. (laughs) We exist and we're here. Yes. And that for me, it was always like, like, well, I feel like I need to choose this side of things versus that side of things. And it's like, that's not true. And that, that my experience is, is very real. And I think like, you know, even looking at like everything everywhere all at once and yeah, massively impacted movie that was, I was like, that was a, a time where I was like, Oh, that is an Asian American movie in a really cool way. Chank and Dunk is an Asian American movie. Yeah. It's not a thing. It, it's something that like, I'm sure I gave my family a lot of grief around and I feel like I am bummed because in some ways I want to go back and talk to that 12 year old version of myself and yeah. be like, you are enough and you don't yeah. need to be like that. You know, like, in that I way, love you, man. <laughs> I know. Hey, and you know what, Rishi, I think again, I'm acting like I'm like a bar right now, but like, I'm just saying as your identity is always constantly changing. It might not be as much as you get older, but I think that's part of the journey. And if you're not constantly trying to figure out who you are, I feel like if you think you're done with who you are at 30 or 35 or 40 and just, you're not really curious. You're not really searching then. I don't think it ever ends. I don't know. Maybe just because I'm almost constantly searching. And so oh, no, I, I mean, I don't I know. I've had like 18 careers in like 20 years. So I have no idea. <laughs> I hope it doesn't stop. I hope that you kind of keep like shifting your identity. Yeah. And things. It's like the best part of being alive. It is. I mean, my husband's just given up on me. So I'm like, cool. Just keep <laughs> on going. <laughs> okay. We're going to do a quick fast round and then I promise I'll let you go. All no. right. First, first, first thing you can think of. Oh no. I'm, ter- <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at the- I'm just gonna give you a full warning that I'm so bad at those types of bathrooms. It's okay, I guess. Whenever it's like on the red carpet, I just freeze up and I'm there like, what what's a good cool movie that you've never seen? And I'm like, no, I don't know. have I ever seen a movie in my entire life? You're like, uh, I'm not a producer. I've no I've no idea what you're talking about. Describe yourself in one word. On one hand, I'm like ambitious, perfectionist. On the other hand, I'm just like incredibly anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's exactly me. Absolutely. Ambitious and anxious. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to be yeah, both. Yeah. I like it. See, you can do it. You're answering <laughs> it. What is your biggest pet peeve at work or, you know, life? I hate when people don't care about what they're doing. Like, it's really hard. It's hard to work with someone who has stopped caring right. about a thing. And it's, it's just like, just just care or don't do it. Right. Have you, on a side note, because you are CEO, have ever had to deal with that? 
Yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know we can't say names, but yeah. that that must be a big part of the job. Yeah. I mean, all of this, like, this business is so hard. This industry is so hard that you just right. have to believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, there's no point. There's no point. Yeah. 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 Okay. This one, you can take a minute. And if you don't have an answer, we'll just skip. Okay. But I just love this question because most people are like, wait, what? Tell me about an interesting experience or encounter you've had recently that you haven't talked about. Well, okay. There's this filmmaker. Her name is Haya Wasim. Okay. I think she's brilliant. She made this movie called Quickening. Okay. That was at Toronto in 2021. It's this beautiful movie about a South Asian woman and her anxieties and those manifesting in some really intense ways. Hi and I have been, you know, we were talking about kind of a, hopefully the idea of working on a project together at some point or another. And we just had this incredible Zoom recently where we were just bouncing ideas back and forth and just talking about the things that we like, things we're reading. And it reminded me how much I love just that part of the creative process. Yeah. Where there's not really like, there's not a thing yet to talk about. There's not a product that you're working on or shifting, but there's a joy in just creative conversations. Yeah. And so I haven't talked about it because there hasn't been anything to talk about really. That's exciting. Yeah. Yet. But it's just a good, it was a good reminder that like, I, this is yeah. like, this is the privilege and joy of this job is getting to talk to really brilliant, talented, creative people about interesting ideas. Yeah. I feel that way about the podcast, by the way. So, mm-hmm. I, and I think, I think it goes back to also what you said earlier and I'm going to do a big sister advice for you. That's a, not that you need me to give you advice, but no, no, you already got it down. I think you know what you're doing. Um, but it's all about even like feeling that great energy with someone. Again, the older I'm getting, like it's so every time I have that great energy with someone, I'm like, man, I'm so that's awesome. Like humans are awesome. They can, yeah. be, they can be dicks too. But when you find that connection and that you have that right energy, and I think what you said, and please continue remembering this throughout your journey of, you know, when you become like CEO of the world, just <laughs> the, the, the right energy, work with the right people, really, no, no matter what who backgrounds or, or how many how many social media followings, whatever it is, it's really about the good people, the right people. Absolutely. It makes all the difference. Okay, I'm done being an auntie. <laughs> who would be your ultimate collab this year? that you have never, someone you've never worked with? I feel like I've named so many of them already just on yeah. this call in terms of, of all the filmmakers that I want to work with. Yeah. Well, there's one filmmaker that I think is just absolutely brilliant who I'm dying to work with. Um, her name is Anuvalia. She's been crushing it in television space, just made her first feature film. We've been talking about collaborating on things together. I think she is going to be a gigantic filmmaker and star. That's awesome. Um, and really, you know, be a torchbearer for, for the South Asians out there. And so I'd say I'd love to work with Anya. All right. Throw it out there, universe. Okay, last question. If it all goes awry, everything goes to shit, what do you consider your bare bones of happiness? Bare bones of happiness, you know, I think we all desire a certain level of financial security. But I think having the space and time to read a good book is my is my happiest place. Good book, like on a beach kind of thing? I think more like, more like Misty Cabin on the Oregon coast. Oh, I got it. That's your Portland side coming out. <laughs> I mean, couldn't you guys 
feel like his positive energy just through the audio. I am telling you, just interviewing him through the internets, I could sense how humble he is. He has such good energy. I mean, the man has worked at the mailing department at UTA not that long ago, and now he's going to change the landscape of entertainment. I mean, I think they should make a movie about him. Just throwing it out there. You guys, please check out all that Hillman Grad is doing. You can go to hillmangrad.com and at hillmangrad on all socials. As always, follow me at tucker.podcast, tucker.withummy.com, and my substack, ummytucker.substack.com. This podcast is produced and edited and made with love by Genie Media. Thank you guys for listening. I will see you next week. This is Tuckered Out.